Chapter Sixteen of Flemington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nan Dodge. Flemington by Violet Jacob. Chapter Sixteen. The Two Ends of the Line. Three days afterwards, Wattie sat at the gates of Ardguys and looked between the pale yellow ash-trees at the house. There was nobody about at the moment to forbid his entrance, and he drove quietly in at a foot's pace and approached the door. The sun shone with the clear lightness of autumn, and the leaves, which had almost finished the fitful process of falling, lay gathered in heaps by the gate, for Madame Flemington liked order. On the steep pitch of the ancient slate roof a few pigeons— white and grey, sat in pairs or walked about with spasmodic dignity. The whole made a picture, high in tone like a watercolour, and the clean-etched lines of the stripped branches gave it a sharp delicacy and threw up the tall, light walls. All these things were lost upon the beggar. He had informed himself in Forfar. He knew that the place was owned and lived in by a lady of the name of Flemington, who was the grandmother of the young man from whom he had lately parted. He had learned nothing of her character and politics because of the seclusion in which she lived, and he stared about him on every side and scanned the house for any small sign that might give him a clue to the tastes or occupations of its inhabitant. Whilst he was so engaged, the front door opened, and the sound sent all the pigeons whirling from the roof into the air in flashes of grey-blue and white. Madame Flemington stood on the top step. The beggar's hand went instinctively to his bonnet. He was a little taken aback, why he did not know, and he instantly abandoned his plan of an emotional description of Archie's plight. She stood quite still, looking down at him. Her luxuriant silver hair was covered by a three-cornered, piece of black lace that was tied in a knot under her chin, and she wore the calash, or hood, with which the ladies of those days protected their headdresses when they went out. A short furred cloak was round her. She considered Waddy with astonishment, then she beckoned to him to approach. "'Who and what are you?' she asked, laying her hand on the railing that encircled the landing of the steps." That question was so seldom put to him that it struck him unawares, like a stone from behind a hedge. He hesitated. "'I've got news for your ladyship,' he began. "'I asked your name,' said Madame Flemington. "'Watty cared,' replied he. "'Skirling Watty, they call me.' The countryside and its inhabitants did not appeal to Christian, but this amazing intruder was like no one she had ever seen before. She guessed that he was a beggar, and she brushed aside his announcement of news as merely a method of attracting attention. "'You are one of the few persons in these parts who can afford to keep a coach,' she remarked. A broad smile overspread his ribald countenance like the sun irradiating a public-house. "'Dod, my lady, I'd think shame to visit ye on foot,' said he, with a wag of his head. "'You have better reasons than that,' she replied rather grimly. "'Ay, ay, they're by the wa,' said he, looking at the place where his legs should have been. 
I'm an ill sicked for the salters. She threw back her head and laughed a little. She had seen no one for months with the exception of Archie, who was so quick in mind and speech, and the humor of this vagabond on wheels took her fancy. There was no whining servility about him in spite of his obvious profession. The horrified face of a maidservant appeared for one moment at a window, then vanished, struck back by the unblessed sight of her mistress, that paralyzing, unapproachable power, jesting, apparently, with Skirling Watty, the lowest of the low. The girl was a native of Forfar, the westernmost part of the beggar's travels, and she had often seen him in the streets. "'You face life boldly,' said Madame Flemington. "'And what for no? Fegs greetin' fills nobody's kite.' She laughed again. "'You shall fill yours handsomely,' said she. "'Go to the other door, and I will send orders to the women to attend to you.' "'I will I,' he exclaimed. "'But as wasna just for a piece that a came all the way for the Muir o' Rossi.' "'From where?' said she. "'The Muir of Rossi,' repeated he. "'My lady, it was a wa yonder at the tail o' the Muir "'that I tellt Maester Flemington the road to Aberothock. "'Mr. Flemington?' "'Ay, yon lad Flemington, "'and a divil of a lad he is to tack the road with. "'My lady, there's been a puckly feckin' about Montrose, "'and the prince's men he gotten a hold at King George's ship "'that's in by Ferryden.' As I gaed down to the tune, I capit with Flemington in the road. He gotten a clure on his head. He was fechtin' doon about Inchbrayock, he tellt me. Fighting with whom? asked Madame Flemington, fixing her tiger's eyes on him. The beggar had watched her face narrowly while he spoke for the slightest flicker of expression that might indicate the way her feelings were turning. He was fechtin' with Captain Logie, he continued boldly. A fell man, yon. Ye'll ken him, your ladyship? By name, said Christian. I'm thinking it was fra him that he got the clower on his heed. I guide him on my good whiskey bottle, and I got water to him fra a well. I guide him awa fra the roadside. He didna ken what will be after him, you see. And I gared a clatterin' old wife at the muir side, guys a sheltered yon nicked. I didna leave the callant, my lady, till I got a shelp to him. He's in Edinburgh. I tellt him what get him a passage to Leith. I'm an Aberbrothock man myself, ye ken. And did he send you to me? Aye, did he, said he, lying boldly. There was no sign of emotion, none even of surprise on her face. Her heart had beaten hard as the beggar talked and the weight of wrath and pain that she had carried since she had parted with Archie began to lighten. He had listened to her. He had not gone against her. How deep her words had fallen into his heart she could not tell, but deep enough to bring him to grips with the man who had made the rift between them. "'Are you sure of what you say?' she asked quickly. "'Did you see them fight?' "'Na, na, but twas the lad himself that tellt me. He was on the ship.' He was on the ship. Aye, was he, and he gaed oot with the soldiers to deave they rebels fra inch break. They got the ship, my lady, but they didna get him. He escaped. Did you say he was much hurt? said Madame Flemington. 
Hoots, ye needna fash yourself, my lady. I was feared for him in the nicht, but there wasna muckle rang with him when he gaed awa, or dod I wouldna ha left him. He had no mind to spoil his presentment of himself as good Samaritan. So far he had learnt nothing. He had spoken of the prince's men as rebels without a sign of displeasure showing on Madame Flemington's face. Archie might be playing a double game, and she might be doing the same, but there was nothing to suggest it. She was magnificently impersonal. She had not even shown the natural concern that he expected with regard to her own flesh and blood. "'Go now,' said she, waving her hand towards the back of the house. "'You shall feed well, you and your dogs, and when you have finished you can come to these steps again, and I will give you some money.' You have done well by me. She re-entered the house, and he drove away to the kitchen door, dismissed. If Waddy hoped to discover anything more there about the lady and her household, he was disappointed. The servants raised their chins in refined disapproval of the vagrant upon whom their mistress had seen fit to waste words under the very front windows of Ardguy's. They resolved that he should find the back door socially a different place, and only the awe in which they stood of Christian compelled them to obey her to the letter. A crust or two would have interpreted her wishes, had they dared to please themselves. But Madame Flemington knew every resource of her larder and kitchen, for French housekeeping and the frugality of her exiled years had taught her thrift. She would measure precisely what had been given to her egregious guest down to the bones laid by her order before his dogs. The beggar ate in silence amid the brisk cracking made by five pairs of busy jaws. The maids were in the stronghold of the kitchen, far from the ungenteel sight of his coarse enjoyment. When he had satisfied himself, he put the fragments into his leathern bag and went round once more to the front of the house. A window was open on the ground floor, and Madame Flemington's large white hand came over the sill, holding a couple of crown pieces. She was sitting on the window seat within. Her cloak and the calish had disappeared, and Waddy could see the fine poise of her head. She dropped the coin into the cart as he drove below. As he looked up, he thought that if she had been imposing in her outer garments, she was a hundredfold more so without them. He was at his ease with her, but he wondered at it, though he was accustomed to being at his ease with everybody. A certain vanity rose in him, coarse remnant of humanity as he was, before this magnificent woman, and when he had received the silver, he turned about, facing her, and began to sing. He was used to the plebeian admiration of his own public, but a touch of it from her would have a different flavor. He was vain of his singing, and that vanity was the one piece of romance belonging to him. It hung over his muddy soul as a weaving of honeysuckle may hang over a dank pond. Had he understood Madame Flemington perfectly, he might have sung The Todd, but as he only understood her superficially, he sang Logie Kirk. He did not know how nearly the extremities of the social scale can draw together in the primitive humours of humanity. It is the ends of a line that can best be bent to meet, 
not one end and the middle. Yet, as Logie Kirk ran out among the spectral ash trees, she sat still, astonished, her head erect like some royal animal listening. It moved her, though its sentiment had naught to do with her mood at present, nor with her cast of mind at any time. But love and loss are things that lay their shadows everywhere, and Madame Flemington had lost much. Moreover, she had been a woman framed for love, and she had not wasted her gifts. As his voice ceased, she rose and threw the window up higher. "'Go on,' she said. He paused, taking breath for a couple of minutes. He knew songs to suit all political creeds, but this time he would try one of the Jacobite lays that were floating round the country. If it should provoke some illuminating comment from her, he would have learned something more about her, and incidentally about Archie, though it struck him that he was not so sure of the unanimity of interest between the grandmother and grandson which he had taken for granted before seeing Madame Flemington. His cunning eyes were rooted on her as he sang again. My love stood at the lone side and held me by the hand. The bonniest lad that e'er did bide in all this wayful land. There's but thy bonnier to be seen, fra Pentland to the sea. And for his sake but yestereen, I sent my love from me. I guide my love the white, white rose that's at my feather's wa. It is the bonniest flower that grows where ilka flower is braw. There's but I brawer than I can fra Perth unto the main. And that's the flower of Scotland's men that's fechtin for his ain. If I had kept whate'er was mine as I had guide my best, my hair twere licked by day and zine, the nicht what bring me rest. There is nae heavier heart to find from far far tune to air, as I I sit me doon to mind on him I see nae mair. Lad, gin ye fall by Charlie's side to rid this land of shame, there will not be a prouder bride than her ye left at hame. But I will see ye war ye sleep fra lowlands to the peat, and ilk a nicht at mirk I'll creep to lay me at your feet. You sing well, said Christian, when he had stopped. Now go. She inclined her head and turned from the window. As his broad back, so grotesque in its strange nearness to the ground, passed out between the gate-posts of Ardguys, she went over to the mantelpiece. Her face was set, and she stood with clasped hands, gazing into the fireplace. She was deeply moved, but not by the song which only stirred her to bitterness, but by the searching tones of the becker's voice that had smitten a way through which her feelings surged to and from her heart. The thought that Archie had not utterly broken away from her 
unnerved her by the very relief it brought. She had not known till now how much she had suffered from what had passed between them. Her power was not all gone. She was not quite alone. She would have scorned to admit that she could not stand in complete isolation, and she admitted nothing even to herself. She only stood still, her nerves quivering, making no outward sign. Presently she rang a little handbell that was on the table. The genteel-minded maid appeared. "'Misey,' said Madame Flemington, "'in three days I shall go to Edinburgh.'" End of chapter 16